Saru was only five years old uh, when he was lost. You see, he was a young boy in India, and he and his 14-year-old brother were traveling. He was traveling with his brother, and his brother was a, a sweeper for the trains. So he'd bring Saru along with him, and one day, Saru just happened to be with his brother, and his brother had left him on a bench, and he had taken off. And he was conducting his business, and a lot of time passed. Saru had actually fallen asleep. He woke back up again. He had no idea where his brother was, so he started searching for his brother on the trains, and over time, he couldn't find him, so he just nodded off on one of the trains. Now, that fateful nap would forever change his life. He thought that his brother would come back and wake him up again, but instead, 14 hours later, he woke up in Kolkata, India. He'd been on a train, and that train had taken him 14 hours away from home. Saru searched for help, but he did not receive any. Kolkata is the third largest city in India, and it's notorious for having slums and uh, children begging on the streets. And that's just what happened to Saru. He became a beggar on the streets. After some time, he was picked up by an orphanage and put up for adoption. He was adopted by the Briarleys. They were a couple from Australia, Tasmania to be precise. Now, Saru settled down in a new home and in a foreign country. As he grew older, though, that desire to know his roots and his family began to stir within him. But there was a big problem. He was an illiterate five-year-old at that time when he was taken away from home. He had no idea where home was or what home was called. How does one find home when one has no idea where home is or what home is called? This story of Saru reminds me of the condition of these exiles that we've been reading about here in Nehemiah. This ragtag bunch of exiles, I mean, just picture their situation for a moment. Imagine that you're a part of a people that has been physically ripped out of your land. For some 70 years, they remained in exile, and then after that 70 years' time, wave after wave would go back. So now we're here at the time of Nehemiah, and many more years past 70 years have, has gone by. Their minds, their memories of who God is, of their culture, of their language, has become quite foggy at this point. How do you come to know what God is like how he wants you to live, and how you can have a relationship with him. Well, here in Nehemiah 8, we're going to see some principles of how we come to know God, uh, the resource that he has left us so that we can come to know him, and that we can find our way back home. So I'd invite you, open your Bibles with me. We're going to be looking at Nehemiah 8. We're going to be on page 403. Now, we've got a lot to cover this morning, so I'm going to be clipping along. So you got to hang with me, okay? We're going to see a couple of principles. Let's start with verse 1 there in Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah 8, 1. All of the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord 
had commanded Israel. Let's stop there. The first principle that we're going to see this morning is the way you find your way back home is to look to God's book. The Bible is God's book. I love the sense of uh, solidarity and unity that you see in this passage. The text says that they came together as one man. The people of Israel understood that in order to move forward as a people, they would have to center their priorities, their convictions, their truth around the book, God's book. How do a people come to know God without the book? Without the book, it's as if we're flying blind in life. I'd like to talk about two theological uh, words with you this morning, two that help to explain the nature of what the Bible is. The first is the word revelation. Revelation is the, the Bible presents itself to be the revealed truth of God. Even here in verse 1, you see that. It says, bring out the book of the law of Moses, that who? The Lord commanded So these thoughts just didn't bubble out of Moses' mind. They were a word from God that he had given to Moses. The word revelation actually means unveiling. You can picture it like a curtain that is being drawn, and as you look through, you see what is behind it. Howard Hendricks writes, In Scripture, God has revealed things that would otherwise be known, would not be known at all. He has unveiled that which is absolutely true, not speculated, not conjectured, not hypothesized. It is truth that is entirely consistent, never controverted, compromised, or contradicted by other parts of the revelation. I think another important word is the word inspiration. Uh, The great theologian B.B. Warfield said that the Bible is the word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, how does that work? How can it say that God is speaking if it was a human person who put pen to paper and wrote the words in the Bible? Now, when we're talking of this word inspired, we're not talking about a great work of art where an an artist was inspired to do this great work. We're meaning something different. Uh, 2 Peter 1.21 explains it to us. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. That word carried conveys the idea of a boat being pushed along by its sails as wind blows and powers the boat to go. So the biblical writers were guided in their writing to go where God wanted them to go to produce the work that God wanted them to produce. And even though we see as we look at the different books of the Bible the various personalities, writing styles, perspectives, and distinctives, this is not a book of man. It is a book that carries the very words of God. How can you expect to have clarity in this world without a word from God? I mean, I'm just thinking about it. If you watch the the news cycles or anything like that, you'll have one expert telling us with absolute authority, this is true and this is absolutely right, and another expert stands up and they completely contradict what the other one said. Time and time again, Who else has the whole perspective on life but God? Who else knows all things, sees all things, knows the outcome of all things? Only God. And God has given us a revelation in in his word. It is 
direction in an otherwise directionless world. It is light to our path. Psalm 119 uh, gives us these types of imageries. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now it's interesting, Psalm 119 is the biggest chapter in all of the Bible, and they question who wrote it. But many scholars believe that Ezra, uh, the man named here in verse 1, was the scribe or the priest who penned Psalm 119. He's an interesting figure. He's a scribe and a priest. So when Nehemiah had arrived onto the scene, Ezra was now an old man. In fact, he came before Nehemiah by 14 years, and he had been laboring amongst the people with the word of God. He'd been rebuilding them spiritually, so much so that I believe that when Nehemiah stood up before the people and he said, arise, let's build, they were responding to him because they had been poured into for years. And I think this is a very important leadership principle we see in the text this morning. Leadership principle number 27, leaders do not generally succeed in isolation. They often build upon another leader's foundation. Isn't that true? Ezra had laid the foundation of instilling the word of God. The the scriptures say that he was a diligent student of the word. Ezra 7.10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach its statutes and its rules in Israel. I love that progression of thought there. Study, do, then what? Teach. People often get that order out of whack, don't they? but not Ezra. And so as he did this, we see the people coming here in verse 1 and asking for the book. They knew that it was necessary. They knew that unless they had the book, they knew the book, they internalized the book, they wouldn't be rebuilt as a people. Let's look at another principle we see here in the text. The Bible is for all people. And it must go with us everywhere we go. The text reads in verse 2, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they had heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform and they made, that they had made for this purpose. And he had 13 individuals standing beside him. So Ezra opens up the book we see here. And the text says this, now get this, uh, from morning to midday. Six hours. Can you imagine sitting in church hearing me babble on for six hours? You... you Whoa, I don't even want to hear me speak for six hours. But, you know, that's just kind of how integral the word of God was to these people. They knew that they needed to hear a word from God, that in order to be um, uh, led forward as a people, they would have to know what the book says and understand what the book says. I love, too, who had gathered, it says, men, women, and all who could understand children. 
who were beginning to understand the word of God. Children sitting and listening to preaching for six hours. I mean, can you imagine it? Now, Deuteronomy 31, 11 talks about the need for children to hear good teaching. Listen to what it says. You shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourners within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, and get this, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear. Children need to be in church. Uh, They need to hear the songs sung and sing the songs with us. They need to hear the Bible read. They need to hear godly men and women praying and leading us in that way. They need to hear even the preacher. Deuteronomy says that unless they hear these things, how will they come to know God, trust God, love God, and desire to follow God with their lives? Now, I was um, a pastor's kid, so I grew up in the church, and let me just say, I've heard more sermons than I can even count. And uh, boy, you know, there were times where I struggled sitting through a sermon. But I I realized over time that that was very formative to me. And so we have, Katie and I have decided that that would be very important to us, that our children would sit in church and hear the word of God preached. Um, We send them the Kid Venture program, because that's really awesome. We make sure they do that. But then we bring them up here and we have them sit into the church service. I remember one Sunday, it was the second service, and I was sitting next to Zach. And um, we were getting ready, the music was going on, and I was looking over at him. And he just started getting really antsy and shaking. I mean, it was really erratic. It looked like the Energizer Bunny had just drinking uh, a monster. That's what it kind of looked like to me. And I was like, Zach, what are you doing, man? Like, right in the middle of church and you're going nuts. And he looked up at me with these really big eyes and he said, Daddy, I already sat in the first sermon service and I heard your sermon and, and I don't want to listen to it again. It's too long. <laughs> Let me just say this, okay? <laughs> say this. If you ever want to know reality... Ask a child, right? So Katie and I won't make him sit through two sermons, but he can handle one, right? He can, he can make it through one. Uh, another thing that we see in the text here, I want you to notice where they read. It talks about the water gate. Now, where is the water gate? Isn't that just some random gate in Jerusalem? Well, it's the city of center, uh, the center of city life. It's the place where the normal hustle and bustle, mundane, everyday, ordinary things of life happen. They're not reading the word of God in the place where religious things are thought and said and done. They're bringing the word of God out into where life takes place. This is where wisdom cries to be heard. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. In the head of the noisy streets, she cries out at the entrance of the city gates. She speaks. The idea here is that God's word needs to go where you go. 
I'm not saying this to say that your nose needs to be in the book as you're walking about, but your nose should be in the book. And the wisdom of the book should be carried forth with you. It needs to go home with you. It needs to sit at the dinner table as you're conversing with your family. It needs to be on the couch next to you as you're surfing Netflix. It needs to be in the car with you as you're commuting to work. It needs to be in the office as you're conducting your work or as you're going from job site to job site or as you're conducting the affairs of the house or as you're making decisions on the activities that you will engage in through the week. God's wisdom must go with us everywhere we go. It's necessary for life and godliness. And it's for all people. A third principle, the Bible deserves our respect, verses 5 and 6. It says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, and lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So I think you noticed the reverence there. The people stood, they answered, Amen. I understand that the children at VBS this week were learning about what that word, Amen, means. Let it be true. So be it. They bowed. Warren Wearsby notes that they didn't worship the book. They worshiped the Lord who spoke to them from the book. Derek Kidner writes, What is strikingly apparent is the royal reception given to the word of God. This day was to prove a turn point. From now on, the Jews would be predominantly the people of a book. We need to give God's word the reverence that it deserves because the word of God forms our lives, our very lives depend on it. I was thinking about this when I read a story about a Japanese baseball player, Ishiro Suzuki, played for the Marlins. He is one of the the best hitters um, that was in the league for several years, and he was noted for the care that he would give to his baseball bats. Normally, a a sports player just kind of lobs the bat into the, the bag and they go about their day. But Suzuki would buy his bats from the Mizuno Sports Equipment Company. They would custom make his bats out of tamo wood grown in the Japanese island of Hokkaido. And he would never throw his bats into the canvas. In fact, he had this suitcase made in order to store his bats All eight of them would be in there. It was temperature controlled, moisture controlled, everything that you can think about. Suzuki said that he cared for the bats and respected the bats because he saw his livelihood as depending upon them. I mean, just think about that for a moment. I think that's the sense you get from these exiles, isn't it? They see their life as depending on the words of God. God tells us to take care of his words, to respect them, honor them by reading them, meditating upon them, memorizing them, discussing them with others, hearing them taught, and most important of all, believing them and obeying them. This is what we see taking place with this community here. Another principle, number four, the Bible must be understandable. 
So 13 are standing around with Ezra. They're Levites. And the text says that they helped the people to understand the law while uh, the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood what was being read to them. So we don't know exactly what's taking place here, but there was some 40 to 50,000 exiles gathered here. And Ezra was standing up, and I, I believe that he was reading portions of the scriptures to him. And then these 13 men were standing around, and they were translating and then explaining what the Bible meant, what the law of God said. The term to make clear in the Hebrew means to make something flow together in a meaningful fashion. Now, why was this necessary? Well, the Jews born into captivity. They were Jews by birth, but not by language and culture. And so some of them actually spoke Aramaic, and I believe some of these men were translating from Hebrew to Aramaic to them. Others um, had grown up with the Hebrew language, but the language itself had undergone significant changes. What happens when a thousand years passes with a language? You can just put it like this. Let's put John Wycliffe's version of a passage up there. Now, just imagine you'd never seen this passage before, and this is being spoken to you. All ye, I can't even read this, that Trullian and Ben Charged come to me, and I shall fulfill you. Take ye my yoke on you, and learn ye of me, for I am mild and meek in heart, and ye shall and find rest to your solace, for my yoke is soft and my charge light. Wycliffe's translation is the oldest English translation of the Bible. It's some 600 years old. It was in the 14th century that this was written. 1,000 years from Moses to Ezra. Just think about it. And think about, too, what a blessing it is that we have a translation of the Bible that is very readable and understandable. It's a blessing from God. Good translations like the ESV, the NIV, the New Living Translation, the New English Translation, blessings to us from God. I want to submit that there's another principle here too. The principle is that a Christian should have a regular diet of expository preaching. They're reading the word, they're explaining what the word says. That's what expository preaching is. That's why we look at passages and break them apart and try to understand them because we believe that God has outlined his word in such a way that as we follow along with it, he directs us through it. It's very important. Some of the best preachers ever produced in history, Chrysostom, Lucer, Calvin, Edwards, Matthew Henry, Charles Simeon, Charles Spurgeon, G. Campbell Morgan, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and yes, Harry Fletcher. <laughs> right? I just got to say, last week's sermon, I, I listened to it driving home, and it was just amazing. It wasn't an expository sermon, but it was expository because he was bringing, exegeting the truth out of God's word. And I'll tell you, that kind of clear, robust preaching, when a congregation is fed by that over time, it shapes them, it molds them. Another key word in this passage is the word understand. It's repeated some five times, verse 2, verse 3, verse 7, verse 12. Good preaching aims so that all people would understand. It doesn't try to marvel people with eloquence. 
It doesn't aim at those with academic prowess. It seeks to bring the high-hanging fruit of God's truth down to the table so that when it is divided out, even the children can eat. One pastor gave this advice, 51 Sundays of the year preach so that the youngest child in your congregation can understand it. The 52nd preach so that the PhD, the THD, the EDD, and the MD are bewildered, awestruck, and filled with wonder. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that even though he had more than 40 doctors and magistrates in his church, when he preached, he spoke to the young people, children, and servants. He said, if the educated people weren't impressed, the door is open. Let them go. What happens when we understand the Bible? It impacts the heart. Look at verses 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who is the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the Lord or the joy of the Lord is your strength. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that one. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now why did they weep? Because they had understood God's word. The Spirit of God brought the truth home to the human heart. And when you realize that you have not been in right relationship with God and that as a result of that that you've made a wreck of your life and that there's a pathway back to God, it breaks the heart, doesn't it? The God of the universe, Nehemiah is saying to them, is a God who produces joy though, not sorrow. He's telling the people to stop weeping. It's a day of joy. You're being reacquainted with him. This is what God's word does. It wounds and then it heals. It produces godly sorrow, but that godly sorrow provides a pathway of healing that leads to a life of joy. That's what's offered to you by God. I was just thinking about this. Um, as you think of the progression that you're looking at here in verses 1 through 12. It talks about them teaching, hearing, understanding, and then joy. When you come to know God's word, verse 10 applies, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Or as you see in verse 12, there's great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. I was thinking about this principle as I was reading one of my favorite books, Women of the Word. Women of the Word, come on. All right. You guys have a problem with that book? I don't. Um, but as I was reading this book, I was reading uh, one of the principles from it that Jen Wilkins cites. She was citing the research um, that deals with the head and the heart. Uh, a guy named Paul Bloom, a Yale professor with a PhD in cognitive psychology, um, he specializes in pleasure research. So he studies how humans derive pleasure, how they get joy out of life. 
he discovered that pleasure does not simply occur, it develops. He states, people ask me, how do you get more pleasure out of life? And my answer is extremely pedantic. Study more. The key to enjoying wine isn't just to guzzle a lot of expense in wine, it's to learn about wine. Wilkins writes, pleasure results from gaining knowledge about the object of our pleasure. Our pleasure increases in something when we learn its history, origin, and nature. And this is particularly relevant to Christians. We are called to be a people who delight ourselves in the Lord, who can say with conviction that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. She continues, finding greater pleasure in God will not result from pursuing more experiences, but from knowing him better. It will result from making a study of the character of God. Do you have that joy? Are you kind of frantically running about in life looking for joy, not finding it when all along it's right here in God's word? The word of God that wants to introduce you to the person of God through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who God sent into this world to die on your behalf so that you could be brought and made into right relationship with him? You can have that joy. It's free to all who would come and drink of the word of God and learn from it. Let's look at one more last principle here, and I'll be closing us down shortly. The sixth principle, the Bible must be applied. You see here in verse 13, on the second day that the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make books as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to the day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. There it is again. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there were solemn assembly according to the rule. So Howard Hendricks, in another book that I'd like to present to you, in this book, Living by the Book, if you've never read this one, it's a great book. This is kind of my shameless plugs moments, you know, pick these up, read them, they're good. Um, He describes how we can tend to fall into a rhythm of hearing the Bible, feeling compelled by the Bible, but then not necessarily experiencing life change from the Bible. Maybe you've had that happen to you before. You've sat in a sermon and, and you felt compelled as the word of God was open to you. You said to yourself, I'm going to go home. I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to start engaging with my family in a different way than I have been. I'm going to get missional with my life. I'm going to serve in church. It all sounds like a great line of thinking, but the bright picture dims when we realize we've said it a dozen times. And haven't changed. 
Hendricks' comments, too much application stays at the level of good intentions. Because we talk about the end of the journey without specifying when, where, and how we're going to take the first steps. I believe that these verses here in Nehemiah 8 give us some principles for making life change happen as you submit to the Spirit of God by going into the Word of God. The first principle is that you have to make a decision to change. Verse 13 shows us that the heads of the families came together to study the law under Ezra. That word study means to gain insight into wise behavior. It means conforming one's life to the character of God. So this is a good model, I think, to us. Verse 13. I think a leadership principle, too. The leaders saw the need to get into the Word of God in order to develop the convictions for the community. So that's leadership principle 28. Leaders form their convictions from the Word of God. Thank you, Siri. So they're studying and they realize that they had been neglecting a prescribed celebration, the Feast of Booths. It was a seven-day feast. They would make booths and they would celebrate all that God has done. It was a, a celebration of looking backwards. For 40 years, Israel had wandered in the wilderness. It was a feast of looking around because they were seeing all the good harvest that the Lord was bringing in. And it was also a feast of looking ahead to the coming of God's kingdom. The leaders said that if we're going to move forward, we're going to have to actually do what the book says. And if we do what the book says, we can't just pick and choose what we want to do with it. You see, people had been performing this celebration before, but they hadn't uh, celebrated in the way that the law of God had prescribed. And let's just be honest, it might have felt a little awkward to go out and make these booths and to sit in the booths and watch everyone come into your city and see you doing this. But they knew that if they were going to go forward, they had to make a decision to change and they would have to lead the people to change. Another principle, you come up with a plan. That's where the rubber meets the road, asking the hard question, how am I going to do this? Verse 15 The plan is prescribed in the word. They should go proclaim it, publish it to the towns and go out and gather the materials. If God's word is saying something to you, the question you need to ask yourself is, how am I going to do it? Maybe you're a father and you're sensing that you need to be the spiritual leader of your home, but there's one problem. You're not there enough. How are you going to get there physically? I love the fact that you're feeling stirred about being home, but how, are, how is that going to happen? I would submit to you that it's not going to happen unless the calendar comes out, unless chunks of time are put into the calendar. And you say to yourself, this is an actionable step in how I'm going to get home so that I can spiritually lead my family. I would say the same thing if it comes to serving in a ministry. You're feeling stirred to serve, but you're never going to a ministry leader. And in outlining a conversation that needs to be had, how are we going to move forward? Here's my spiritual gifts. What, what needs to happen? That's a plan. Unless we form a plan, we remain in this pattern of just feeling stirred but then never doing. Third principle, follow through. And this is where life change really happens. Verse 17, 
It tells us that from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. They went about the celebration. And I believe that what the idea here is not that the, the people of Israel hadn't celebrated this, like we just said before, but they, they followed through with this holy surrendered attitude. If God's word said it, we're willing to do it. That's how life change happens. You hear a word from God, you make a plan, and then you do it. Now let's go back to Saru's story. I left you hanging there. Now remember, he'd settled down in a new home. He had made his way to Tasmania, and he grew older, and a desire to find his family was in his heart. But he had no idea where his hometown was, and he didn't know the name of it. All he had were memories. So in 2011, using vague memories and Google Earth imagery, Saru identified his hometown. He used the ruler feature on Google Earth and he made a radius. He did the math of a 14-hour train ride and he determined the speed of the average Indian train and then he formed his radius with this. After countless hours of scouring this area of Google Earth imagery, he came upon a proverbial needle in a haystack. Saru spotted one vague landmark that led him to the next, helping him to unlock his five-year-old childhood memories. He eventually spotted a neighborhood, a street, a tin roof, and things started to look familiar. He stated to BBC, it was just like being Superman. You're able to go over and take a, a photo mentally and ask, does this match? And when you say no, well, you just keep going and going and going. He finally found this picture. In 2012, Saru embarked on a trip from Australia back to India. And once he arrived, he shared his story with some of the locals in the area that he had identified as where he would possibly be from. And they helped him to find his way back home. And he met his mother and his surviving brothers and sister. 26 years after accidentally leaving home, he finally found his way back. Maybe you can relate to Saru. Maybe you have for some time been operating in life where you feel spiritually lost. You know there's a God. Or you've even come to know this God through his son Jesus. But it just seems like life and Connecting to him and relating to him isn't working. Well, the people in Nehemiah's time were lost and they turned to a spiritual Google map of sorts. They said, Ezra, bring the book. Bring the book. If you want to lead a life that is pleasing to God, you must know this. The book. You going to need to read it. You need to understand it. You need to internalize it. You need to let it change your heart. And you need it to direct your steps that you obey it. As you center your life on this book, I just got to tell you, it's going to change you. Beware. <laughs> it will turn your life upside down, but only for the better. It's the best sort of life possible. And as this book transforms your heart, then you will be like Nehemiah and you will lead where you are. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and um, 
What a wonderful passage here in Nehemiah 8, Lord. As we've seen these exiles being rebuilt slowly but surely in this book of Nehemiah, we're, we're seeing that you're taking us somewhere in this book. It's not just about rebuilding a wall, Lord. It's not just about Nehemiah being a good leader. It's about a plan and a purpose that you would have for the people of God, the spiritual community of God, Lord. And uh, like the Israelites, Lord, we want to be a part of that plan. We want to be spiritually rebuilt. And so, Lord, as pastor of this church, um, the elders of this church in agreement, the, the congregation in agreement, Lord, we commit to putting ourselves underneath your word and letting Jesus Christ be the head of the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.